How's it, everybody? In this episode, Kirk Herbstreet doubts there will be college football this year. Dabo Sweeney says there will be. Who's more in denial? Plus, University of Hawaii Hoops going through some personnel changes, and OJ gives his take on Tiger King. You heard me correctly. All right, we want to once again give a big mahalo out to the medical workers and first responders out there. You are truly heroes living among us, and we hope that all of you are remaining safe and continuing to practice the various directives to combat the COVID-19 pandemic. We know that it's heavy out there, so thanks for listening to our silliness. All right, here's the pod. Episode two, here we go. Kanoa Leahy, Jordan Helly. Uh, Jordan, how's the quarantine treating you here so far? You know, not bad. Uh, this is what's our second podcast in about five days. Uh, so this is uh, becoming a nice little routine. So I got to say that this has been a nice little uh, um, therapeutic, I think, outlet for me. So it's, it's not going bad. I really can't complain. Yeah, yeah, this is the best part of the podcast experience, right? Is kind of being able to control the schedule of it. Gives you a little more creative control. Uh, you get to wear pajamas. I haven't shaved in like two weeks. Um, I don't even remember if I brushed my teeth today. So that's kind of the advantage here of the work at home podcast experience. Yeah, I'm, I'm in desperate need of a haircut, but I figure I'm not really seeing anybody for the foreseeable future. So I'm just going to let that yeah. go for as long as this needs yeah, to go. I I'm already resigned to the fact that I'm going to look like one of the Geico insurance cavemen by the time this is over when I next show up at the barbershop. Uh, it could be uh, an ordeal for whoever is tasked uh, with trimming me up and trying to make me look presentable again uh, at the end of all of this. Uh, if you have any uh, ideas on topics or you have any questions that you want to submit to us, you can do so via Twitter. I'm at Kanoa Leahy. Jordan is at Jordan Helly. Let's get started with what's in the headlines. And there are some local stories to tend to, uh, including involving University of Hawaii men's basketball. It was reported and announced last week that UH basketball players Drew Bugs, the record holder for career assists in the program's history, along with big man Dawson Carper and reserve backcourt member Josiah Villa out of Kahuku High School, they have all announced that they are entering the transfer portal. Now, Bugs is saying that he is merely measuring his options at this point, hasn't made a definitive decision whether or not he is going to leave or possibly return. Uh, but he is reportedly drawing some interest from programs like Gonzaga, New Mexico, Iowa State, among others. Dawson Carper, meanwhile, uh, the seven-footer out of Colorado, says that he intends on transferring. Uh, and, of course, Josiah Villa, it is likely that he is going to find a new home as well. So let's start with that because there is some news on the recruiting front as well for Hawaii. But let's start with Drew Bugs. I mean, this is a record-setting point guard here, a guy who uh, will live on with a certain level of immortality because of the fact that he is the all-time career assist leader. Testing the waters, what do you make of it? Yeah, I think on first glance, right, it's not the greatest news, especially for a guy in Drew Bugs, who I think has grown up a lot since he came to Hawaii from Long Beach, California, a guy who went through so much um, in just personal struggle uh, over the last, what, eight months or so, losing a family member. And I think just showing so much maturity and, and not just in his game, but personally and how much he has developed. Uh, it really turned into the leader of this basketball program the last three years or so, transforming his game, was more of a combo guard coming out of Long Beach Poly, 
turned himself into one heck of a point guard and one of the better guards in a really good guard league in the Big West. And so I think you gotta you gotta look at it from both sides of the coin, right? Uh, you never want to lose a guy who has meant so much, who has been so valuable to this program, especially a guy who really put it out there. We mentioned playing through some some adversity off the court, but also playing through what was a season that I don't know if he was ever really 100% healthy, dealing with the leg injuries. And so for a guy, I think, who has really developed in this program, you also got to look at it from the side standpoint that this is a guy who played himself into this role where, hey, maybe some of the bigger programs are indeed interested in his services. And so that's the the double-edged sword, right? That's the the give and take that comes with it, especially for mid-major programs. We're seeing a bunch of guys from from lower to mid-major programs committing to the likes of Duke and Kentucky and some of these grad transfers. And Drew Bugs is a guy who can go and play immediately. So I think it's it's the good and the bad of it. it it's a place where there is some recognition and some respect for the the ability of this program to develop a Drew Bugs. Um, but you don't want to lose him. But at the same time, you know, you, you think of like a Nick Rolovich leaving uh, in the coaching standpoint. Sometimes guys outgrow the program a little bit, and that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world. Um, you know, it sounds like there is a possibility that Drew comes back, but there, there's also what sounds like a, a pretty intriguing recruiting class coming in to, to step in and, and take over um, whenever that time comes. Yeah, I think that's going to be pivotal here because this is potentially going to be a situation where Hawaii is going to lose four of its five starters with the completing of eligibility for Zygmars Rimo and Eddie Stansberry. Uh, and then you have Dawson Carper, who started a majority of the games. And Drew Bugs, obviously, the staple at point guard. If all those guys end up moving on, you're talking about four starters that you have to look to replace. Samuta Avea would, in essence, effectively be the only returning starter uh, with some experience, obviously, Justin Webster and, and some other players who got spot start. Uh, but that is a load uh, of vacancies to have to try to replace here going forward. And so uh, to that end, I do think that Hawaii got some good news uh, in the fact that they are addressing those backcourt needs. They did get a commitment, a verbal commitment from Javon McClanahan of Sheridan Junior College in Wyoming. He is a guy out of the state of California. He prepped at Salesian Prep. Uh, this is a guy who averaged 23 points per game in his one season at Sheridan. He was a 44% three-point shooter, also dished out six assists, ran kind of a four-out, one-in offense, which is similar to the scheme that the University of Hawaii under head coach Ron Gannat employs. Uh, and so he is added to a list of, as you mentioned, fairly intriguing recruits here. Uh, but they're going to be young. They're going to be very inexperienced. And these are all guys that might have to play right away because of the aforementioned departures. Yeah, and I think it's a class to get pretty excited about. Um, it's what I think is an indication of a, of a different uptick in recruiting. Uh, you think about some of the transfers, the junior college guys that they're bringing in, some of the foreign guys that they're bringing in. Uh, I think those are templates that have been used by the program in the past to find a lot of success, not necessarily in the Oranganat era. Um, there has been a little sprinkling of that, but but definitely at different times throughout this program's history at the likes of the Riley Wallace era and bringing guys from overseas, bringing guys in from junior colleges. And that's what it's got to be in this day and age, right? I think you can't just rely on the big time high school recruit. Those guys aren't going to choose the University of Hawaii. Those guys aren't going to necessarily choose schools in the Big West year in and year out with just so much competition across the landscape just in the western half of the United States. And so I think it is a fresh start in a lot of ways. And and look, they're, they're going to miss those four starters for sure, as you mentioned, especially a guy in Eddie Stansbury, particularly in Drew Bugs, just what they meant 
Uh, you know, Dawson Carper with a lot of those bigs, he's a guy that, that maybe can be replaced. A guy like Zygmars Rymo, who who maximized, I think, his natural ability out there, uh, I think is another position that they can maybe look to upgrade. Uh, and I think for a program that's sort of been stuck in the middle, right, that nine and seven mark in conference has sort of been their destiny uh, the last four or five years. They've, they've really been right around 500. Um, you got to change some things up if you want to change your tide in the conference. And so this is a group that went to the NCAA tournament in 2016, hasn't sniffed the postseason outside of the Big West Conference tournament really since then. And so you you need to change things up a little bit. And, and maybe a little roster turnover might not be the worst thing in the world when you pair it with guys like Javon McClanahan, who I think is very exciting, right? Salesian Prep, as you pointed out, the numbers that he put up at Sheridan Junior College in Wyoming are pretty eye-popping. I mean, he dropped 50 in a game earlier this season. He's a guy who's got three full years of eligibility left, which is a lot for a junior college transfer, obviously. And then you pair that with some of the Australians, right, that they've bring in Junior Madud, who came in mid-season, still has some eligibility left, didn't play this past year. Manella Yall, who supposedly has committed as well uh, as a junior college transfer. Uh, you think of a guy like Bianja Riley, the high schooler out of the San Diego area who turned down the likes of Washington State and UC, uh, U- University of San Diego. Um, this is a recruiting class, I think. And maybe it was the addition of Chris Gerlofson as, as one of the lead assistant coaches for Ron Gannat that has helped push this recruiting effort over the next hub, getting to the next rung. Uh, I think it's a, a transitory time for, for sure for this program, and that's a little bit of an unease, right, when you're losing some very known and reliable commodities, I think, in guys like Bugs and Stansberry. But I think there is a bit of excitement in the fact that, hey, maybe maybe a change in the approach, bringing in some fresh faces, especially young guys who can play right away, maybe get some added years, could bring some excitement and, and hopefully some wins for the Rainbow Warrior basketball squad on the near horizon. Yeah, McClanahan, by the way, is about 5'11", a bit more of a set shooter, but he can hit. I mean, clearly yeah. the numbers uh, bear that out. Uh, and he is a guy who I think can bring a lot, certainly, to this offense. They brought in another point guard uh, that has yet to officially sign, but uh, out of Australia, Biwali Bales, who they really like and feel like he is a guy who is cut from the mold of almost like a Patty Mills. Uh, so that's all exciting there. Uh, but again, you, you mentioned it. Dawson Carper, you know, dare we say all due respect to the big fella, uh, but he's not necessarily a guy you would refer to as irreplaceable. Uh, Josiah Villa, I, I, maybe he was going to be able to find uh, an atmosphere, an environment that suits him a little bit more and allows for him to be more of a competitor for minutes and playing time. I mean, remember, he basically sat this season behind a guy who was a walk-on out of St. Francis in Cameron Ng. And so uh, Josiah Villa probably can find a situation that suits him a little bit better. Uh, But the guys who are, you would describe, irreplaceable or at least much more difficult to fill the shoes of, that's Eddie Stansbury and Drew Bugs and Bugs, you know, I had an interesting conversation with Artie Wilson, uh, my broadcast partner for University of Hawaii Basketball on Spectrum Sports. And uh, he asked me the question, uh, who on this team would be your most outstanding player? Who would be your pick for most valuable player? And I do think that there's a distinction there. And if you're talking about most outstanding player, a guy who averaged about 16 points per game uh, was a threat on both ends of the floor. His endurance is unmatched, would easily play 40 minutes a game and appear to barely break a sweat, it's Eddie Stansberry. But if you're talking most valuable player, the guy who was the engine to this whole thing, a guy who I think you take him out of the lineup and this was a completely different team altogether and and even you could go so far as to say it was almost a shell of itself, is Drew Bugs. 
so yeah, if Drew ultimately does move on to greener pastures, so to speak, uh, I do think that that is going to be an absence felt, and it's not filled just by bringing in another guy that can play the point guard position. You got to kind of have the intangibles that Drew Bugs had. That was that grit. That was that ability to inspire. Uh, and so that is a tough ordeal here in front uh, for this coaching staff. Without a doubt. And you can look at the the scoring production loss. You can look at the assist production loss from those two guys. But I think it's compounded, right, by the fact that, and you kind of allude to this, just the fact that those two guys had the ball in their hand so much more than everybody else on the team. Uh, And especially, obviously, that goes without saying when you're talking about a point guard and Drew Bugs, but just the amount of time on the court, and I don't know what the advanced numbers will tell you exactly just how much time per game those two guys had the ball when they were on offense. Uh, and they were very trustworthy with it. They were very reliable with it. And losing that more than anything, I think, um, is going to be such a huge void to replace for the coaching staff in that group. All right, some other headlines to get to. Uh, the Basketball Hall of Fame has announced its latest class. 2020 will include names like Kobe Bryant, Tim Duncan, and Kevin Garnett. You're talking about a trio of players uh, who are championship pedigree, players who are transcendent, uh, considered all-time talents at their respective positions. Obviously, there's been a lot discussed and written about Kobe Bryant and his impact uh, on the NBA in the wake of his passing. Uh, But this Hall of Fame class, because primarily of that triumvirate of talent and legend, uh, some people are suggesting maybe this is the greatest, Jordan. Well, it's a good one, right? I mean, you talk about those three. You want to throw in Tamika Catchings, who was one of the best WNBA and women's basketball players um, we've ever seen. 12-time WNBA All-Star. You throw in um, some coaching names that I, I don't know if you would necessarily say are all-time greatest, but but definitely some noteworthy names in, in Rudy Tomjanovich, Eddie Sutton on the college basketball side, and Kim Mulkey, who's been terrific at Baylor as the women's basketball coach. They're winning three national championships. Fun fact, she was already in the Hall of Fame as a player, so that's pretty darn impressive. This is good. The top three, obviously, and you, you include Tamika Catchings, I think is very fair on that side as well. I think the thing with basketball, right, it is the Basketball Hall of Fame. It isn't the NBA Hall of Fame. You include every aspect of the game. Kobe Duncan KG's really, really good. I don't know if I'm putting it ahead of 2009, though, right? It gets overshadowed because of Michael's speech, which was an event unto itself. Uh, Michael Jordan, David Robinson, John Stockton, and then you throw in Jerry Sloan and C. Vivian Stringer, the outstanding Rutgers basketball coach on the women's side. Uh, That was a group of five, man. MJ, the Admiral. And Stockton, I don't, I don't know if that closes the gap. I mean, we're talking about Kobe, one of the all-time greats. Tim Duncan, maybe the greatest power forward ever. Kevin Garnett, who's, you know, what, top five at that position, maybe all-time. But you're talking Michael, David Robinson. Where does he sort of fit in the pantheon of great setters and great big men? Uh, John Stockton, one of the greatest assist men to ever play the game. That is a really, really good class. 2008 is pretty good, too. I liked uh, with Patrick Ewing, Hakeem. Pat Riley, Adrian Dantley's in that group as well. And then 2018, they let like everybody in. Uh, so that's a pretty long list that we can get into as well. You're talking about the likes of Grant Hill and Jason Kidd, Steve Nash, Ray Allen. But I think this year in, in 2009, I, maybe it's the Michael Jordan blinders, but I'm, I'm still taking MJ, David Robinson, and Stockton. You know me, I'm a David Robinson guy. This is my all-time favorite basketball player. And so I am partial, I think, to 2009 
MJ, David Robinson, John Stockton. I mean, you're talking about John Stockton, who's still the career assist and steals leader in the NBA, and then Michael Jordan, the GOAT, uh, and David Robinson, who was a Dream Team member, top 50 uh, player, uh, as named by the NBA. And so, uh, yeah, I I would say just if you were looking at those top three players, right, and and so much of the focus is going to be on the NBA guys, but you're right, there are other tremendous basketball contributors who are included in each of these classes. But obviously, those are the headliners. To me, that year, 2009, is number one. I would venture to say that 2020 uh, would be maybe number two. Uh, Tim Duncan, obviously, I'm a Spurs guy. And so, uh, you know, once again, five titles for him, five for Kobe, Kevin Garnett, a championship with the Celtics, um, and just guys who you associate with being all-time talents and really guys who contributed to changing the course of history in the NBA as we know it with Kobe and Kevin Garnett being guys who came straight out of high school at a time where it became much more frequent of a decision made and maybe we'll head back to that direction when the one and done rules are lifted uh, in NCAA and NBA basketball. Uh, But a couple of honorable mentions have to go, in my opinion, to 1980. Uh, That was a class that at least among the NBA inductees, Jerry West, Oscar Robertson and Jerry Lucas. I mean, legends upon legends, Hall of Famers for sure. A class that I think uh, can certainly be included in the discussion of greatest of all time. Uh, And then 2016 would be one. Shaquille O'Neal, Allen Iverson, Yao Ming. You talk about individuals who influence the game uh, and its mass global appeal. Yao Ming and his connection to China and that market. Uh, And then you throw in Cheryl Swoops as part of that class too, one of the all-time great women's basketball players. Uh, So I would say you got to give love to 2016 as well. But yeah, I think 2009 uh, would take the cake in this one. All right, moving on in the headlines. This has been kind of a strange time because we are so starved for any kind of sports-related competition or programming. We are seeing some of the broadcasters nationally take some swings at some ideas that would in any other situation be considered at best a stretch and maybe more to the ridiculous level. I don't know if you've seen any of this on ESPN, but they are airing an NBA 2K20 tournament uh, with teams being controlled by actual NBA players. And the players aren't playing Uh, with their own team in the game. They are free to choose any team that is available. uh, And there are some rules as to what teams you can choose from round to round. But I mean, pretty much everybody's going with like the Lakers or the Bucks or the Clippers. Uh, And I got to be honest, man, I was watching this thing and uh, the entertainment value was um, not particularly high. And this coincides with the fact that NASCAR, Formula One racing, they have been engaging in virtual racing here the last few weeks. Uh, What is your take on these virtual alternatives in the absence of, quote unquote, real sports? I get it. I 100% get it. Heck, the before any of this came down with the the pandemic, you know, the the NBA and a lot of the leagues had had started esports leagues, right? The NBA 2K League and, and a lot of the NBA franchises had formed 2k franchises and so you're talking about a pretty big business and a growing business on that side to begin with and granted those are guys who are just professional video game players as opposed to you know Giannis or something like this uh taking their hand and a lot of these guys play NBA 2k anyway but I wouldn't say necessarily that they're better than like the guy who plays for Mark Cuban's uh esports 2k league team or something like that so I get it I get what we're doing here but it's not for me, man. Like, I, I, I can't watch somebody else play a simulated game. 
if anything, I've been a slightly more, and again, this is on a sliding scale, intrigued with some of the racing, some of the Formula One racing and the NASCAR racing, because it's the guys in, in, in virtual simulators at times. Um, I think that is a little more intriguing, but yeah, it's just the, the state that we're in and the nature we're in. Heck, Sports Center the other day, I think it was Friday, led with like five minutes of highlights from some of the 2K tournament action between NBA players. So yeah, I get it. I get what we're doing. I understand. Some people will consume it, but for me, yeah, I, not for me. I'd probably rather watch an archived old game or something like that. Or, or even, I'm even a little more intrigued with what Woj had tweeted out about the NBA exploring a game of horse with people shooting in their driveways. Like that even <laughs> might be a little bit more my speed than than watching Eric Bledsoe play video games against somebody else. Not, not for me. Uh, hey, look, I get it. You got to try something. And certainly these uh, NBA players are probably so bored out of their wits that they're willing to take part in any level of competition. These are some of the most competitive human beings on the planet at the professional sports level. Uh, and so I can understand their desire to maybe participate. Uh, but it just, you know, I know esports is a thing and I know the broadcasting of it has become big business. Uh, but I just, you know, I'm missing the boat at the moment on this particular version of it. As you mentioned, NASCAR and Formula One, you know, they already engage in those kinds of simulators as training tools and instruments. Uh, and so to incorporate that and sort of turn it into a virtual race, not to mention the graphics are unbelievable. I mean, this is coming from a guy who is, you know, I'm of the generation of Sega Genesis and Nintendo, like 16-bit video games. And so uh, to see what they have been able to accomplish here uh, with the graphics uh, and the realism, even though I do think that I need to take some drama mean if I'm to watch it because I watched like 10 seconds of it and started to feel dizzy. Uh, but I would like to see if they can pull this off in racing. You have golf simulators as well. Why can't we do like a virtual golf event where they're just playing on their simulators at home and they're swinging it and the yardage and the club head speed and all that is being recorded uh, and translated into uh, an actual tournament? I actually think that that's something we could possibly see in the not too distant future. Do you think anybody would like break their simulator like with how hard Dustin Johnson can hit a golf ball uh, and some of these guys that can absolutely just crush it? Um, do we run that risk of guys just dismantling their their high price technology in their homes? Because I feel like, you know, when they're when they're playing and they're going through some of the training, you know, they might not uncork it. But if you get them into a competitive standpoint, they might up it a few notches. And next thing you know, we're, we're dealing with with broken simulators and, and then nobody gets to have any fun. Yeah, I'm all for it, man. Uh, I'm all for seeing something, just something, anything. Uh, this is because if you read a recent Washington Post article, um, it is not very hopeful that we will see sports as we are familiar with it anytime soon. Uh, and this takes us to our main story here of this episode two podcast, questioning how realistic it might be to actually expect a return of sports as we know it prior to 2021. It was written by Adam Kilgore, uh, and it features several contributors, including Jared Evans, a senior researcher at Johns Hopkins University's Applied Physics Laboratory, saying, quote, we need to be prepared for that disappointment. Uh, I shared the article with you the other day, Jordan, and your immediate response was, wow, 
That is sobering. Until we have a legitimate vaccine for COVID-19, how can we realistically know when it is safe to play sports, let alone the decision whether or not to allow mass people into stadiums to observe as spectators these sporting events? Uh, It does call that into question, and it argues until there's a vaccine, how can we possibly expect that to happen? I definitely thought it was sobering, and I think, you know, I think for a lot of people in, in involved in sports, you know, I, I think we're in some stage of denial, right? Uh, whether we're, we're outright saying that, hey, we're going to play. This is no problem. We're, uh, this is going to go on to maybe resign to the fact that that's probably not going to be the case. Realistically, we're, we're not looking at a false start for football. We're not looking to get back to this anytime sooner than that, but not really admitting it to ourselves. I I don't know if there are a lot of people out there standing on a hill saying like, yep, this is going to happen. I know some people have come out and talked when asked about it and not necessarily, you know, trying to trumpet some hot take here or something like that, but just being very resigned to the fact that it's going to take a while, right? And I do think with sports, as much as sports usually leads the way, as much as sports usually provides a return to normalcy, whether it was after the 9-11 attacks or, or some other large-scale event like that, where it was like, hey, we're, we're going to get back to playing baseball. We're going to get back to playing baseball. It's going to be return to normal. We're going to fill Yankee Stadium. We're going to have the president throughout the first pitch. Everything is going to be okay. And then the rest of society kind of follows along. I do think in this sense, in this response to the pandemic, sports are almost going to have to come last because what do sports involve? I mean, it, it's travel, right? Sports involves a ton of travel, especially at the national level in a country the size of the United States. In a lot of leagues that also incorporate teams in Canada, you're talking about long distance travel. You're talking about international travel. I don't know how long it'll take to get back to normal, safe methods of air travel. I think we're a long ways off from that, a long way past people just returning to work or being allowed to gather in groups of 10 or more. Um, what does it involve? It involves crowds in massive stadiums. The United States, whether it's football or whatever have you, on the collegiate side, on the professional side, it is large-scale gatherings. That's what makes sports special here. That's what makes sports so intriguing uh, and I think draw people in. Uh, and then if you want to talk about college football as well, especially in the fall, it's going to require campuses going back to school. And I know a lot of schools at that level, at, at the collegiate level, and we haven't even got into you know prep sports or something like that, but on the collegiate level, they're finishing out the semesters, but it's all online learning. There is no way you can justify teams going back and playing games if students aren't back in class. And how far away are we from having students go back to school and, and sitting in lecture halls with 250 kids or something like that at a big state university? Like That's going to have to come first, right? before we can justify the football team at Ohio State going to practice with 100 guys plus 50 staffers or something like that. And so I think in a lot of ways, sports are going to come last um, in this go around in returning to normalcy because we're going to slowly ease back letting people go to work, letting people go outside, letting people use parks for crying out loud, letting people travel. Uh, And then maybe we'll see people being able to return to stadiums, teams allowed to cross the country multiple times in a season or something like that. Uh, And I think that is the sobering part about it, especially when you're talking about 
something in sports. And I know a lot of people's jobs depend on it. Heck, we're, you know, unemployed sportscasters right now. Uh, I don't know. I don't know where on the scale of absolutely essential to absolutely not essential sports falls. But I think realistically, I mean, it's it's a little down the list. Yeah, this is the antithesis of what we experienced in response to 9-11, where the following week, uh, with a desire to return as quickly to normalcy as possible, people were encouraged to go out, go to restaurants, go to malls, and try to continue life as we know it. Do not let that tragedy disrupt who we are as a society. This is completely different. The message is do not do anything close to what we resemble as normal life, at least for a period of time until we can get a hold of this thing. And I think what this article presented was the argument, hey, look, and we're only relying on much smarter people here and scientists and researchers and people in the medical field who know so much more about this kind of thing and are so much more well-informed than we are. Uh, But basically, everything that I've read, uh, you have experts who are saying there is a legitimate possibility that this thing uh, sees an upswing, even if we are able to flatten the curve now, uh, come wintertime, when the temperatures start to cool and it makes for set of conditions for the virus to make a return. Uh, And so with that in mind, the article is saying, hey, look, how can we then feel comfortable trying to return back to normal as it pertains to sporting events and live congregations of masses of people if there is that distinct possibility that this thing comes back and the problem that is introduced is when all of the approval process is completed, when distribution is achieved, that is going to be somewhere in the 12 to 18, maybe even longer months timeline here. And so this has gained a lot more national traction because of comments that Kirk Herbstreet has made. Of course, he is in many ways the face and voice of college football, but he says that he would be, quote, shocked if there was football in 2020, and he cites exactly what we're talking about as a reason why he is doubtful. Meanwhile, you have Dabo Swinney, head coach for Clemson, saying that he has, quote, zero doubt the season will be played out like normal. Uh, Herb Street has become a bit of a target for criticism. Brian Kelly of Notre Dame says that Kirk doesn't know what he's talking about. He's not a scientist. He's a college football analyst. Uh, Dabo's exact quote was, I have zero doubt that we're going to be playing and the stands are going to be packed. I'll leave it up to the smart people to figure out the doomsday scenarios. So who is more in denial? Who is is treating this with a more accurate expectation, you think, Jordan? Yeah, I mean, I'd love for Dabo and Brian Kelly to be correct, right? I'd love for college football to return really soon and on schedule. Um, But I think if we're looking at it, those guys have much more the optimistic and maybe unrealistic view of this. I, I, I'm with Kirk Herbstreet. I'd be really surprised if we are, and I'd, I'd love to be wrong here, and I don't know if, I don't think we're trying to keep score or anything like that in in this situation, but I, I'd be really surprised if, if we're playing football, if we're playing sports on a wide scale by early in the fall, by Labor Day even, I think is, is a pretty early date, a pretty optimistic date, just the way things are going, right? I mean, you even you're, you're hearing some of the pushback from from some of the leaders out there. I mean, you look at Gavin Newsom, the California governor, uh, and to paraphrase him, right, he, he was talking about, hey, does he envision NFL state NFL teams playing games uh, in his state come September? Uh, and he basically said he he's, he finds that hard to believe, and and he cited what's happening in in places like Japan where they have tried to roll out some 
lessening of restrictions and have kind of had to roll that back. Um, you look at the, you know, the NPB, the top level of Japanese baseball. They tried to go about playing exhibition games after pushing back spring training. Uh, and after, uh, I, I forget which team it was, but one of the teams there had some some individuals test positive and all of a sudden that team shut things down. And so everybody shut things down. And so they tried uh, and play a little baseball, but that got shut down pretty quick. And you, you can see a very similar scenario happening here if we try to come back too early. So uh, I, I, I just think it is much more likely that, that this thing goes on throughout the rest of the calendar year where, where we're not playing sports. Yeah, when I first heard Kirk Herbstreet's comments, I was thinking, all right, Kirk, you know, that's a bit pessimistic. You know, you're probably going to get your $2 million uh, that you get annually from ESPN as your salary anyway. So then in light of the Washington Post story and now what we are hearing, as you mentioned, Gavin Newsom and many other people in positions of authority, uh, they are talking about this thing in very real terms. There is a legit chance we do not see sports as we know it until 2000. And 21. And, and you're right. I think your citing Japanese baseball uh, is on point because, you know, in Japan, the curve flattened and the numbers were such that they felt confident enough to say, hey, look, let's just get some baseball play in. Uh, nobody in the stadium. It'll be in front of uh, empty stands uh, and we can still get some baseball action going. And they had some exhibitions. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, a player tested positive for the coronavirus. And so they shut that down again immediately. And it just creates, I think, too much of an uncertainty to know when it is safe to get teams and players and fans and coaches and staff members all back out there. It just seems like such a difficult proposition at this point in time. Now, the NBA has discussed sort of a quarantine control designated site, Las Vegas being one of the locations uh, presented as a, as a possible option. Uh, because they have obviously ample facilities to be able to pull something like this off. If the NBA were uh, to say, hey, look, let's just uh, continue with the season. We'll start up in the postseason. We will keep all of our players and teams in very controlled conditions and environments. Uh, and we can play in front of empty stands at these various facilities. You know, maybe establishing the rule to maintain social distancing. Everyone has to play defense like James Harden or something. <laughs> but I think that it's just even that, even that scenario, the people who are responsible, if you are Adam Silver uh, and the people who would be on the hook for the liability of all of this thing, uh, how can you be confident enough to give that idea a legitimate go? If you get another Rudy Gobert situation where things are going, you're figuring it out, and all of a sudden somebody tests positive again, everything gets shut down. Like it comes to a screeching halt, just like it did March the 9th or whatever it was in the NBA. Uh, and I think that's the scary part until you get the vaccine, as you point out. Um, even if you try and return, it can stop and halt with the snap of fingers and it goes right back to where we are right now. All right. Uh, that gets us to the end of the show. Uh, best and worst that we have seen here since our last episode on the podcast. Uh, what's your best thing you've seen in sports, uh, since episode one? What's the worst thing you've seen, uh, in sports since episode one? Yeah. Best thing I've seen. Uh, uh, and I hope that the worst thing isn't episode one. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, actually got some positive feedback on that. So uh, there you go. thank you for that, folks out there. Granted, if you had some negative feedback, they probably just weren't going to tell us anyway. Um, so that's <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Best thing I've seen over the last couple of days. Uh, you got to go check this out, especially if you've got time to kill, which everybody does at this point, And you're a sports fan. Um, I caught it on John Boy's Twitter at John Boy underscore. I think a lot of folks familiar with him now. 
uh, covers the Yankees, uh, did a lot of work in uncovering the Astros cheating scandal, uh, but just a great baseball Twitter follow. Uh, but uh, you can also find all of this on r slash baseball, the Reddit subthread. Um, it is basically people who have taken to posting Google satellite images of just quirky baseball fields all over the country. A lot of them are high school baseball fields, small college baseball fields uh, that just exist all over the place and have just bananas dimensions, uh, like a classroom building in right field that all of a sudden makes the porch like 190 feet and then center field goes all the way out because it's just a, a straight edge building, you know, like 400 feet or something like that. Or um, center field just being straight across because it butts up against the back end or the side end of the football stadium right next door. So it looks like you only need two outfielders or something like that. Do yourself a favor. Go check out r slash baseball. Just go to John Boy's Twitter account. It's great. There are some just quirky fields out there. Kind of remind like Kailua High School's field has a hill in center field like old Enron in, in Houston. Um, it, it's quite entertaining. Like I spent a lot of time this morning just scrolling through it and looking at these Google satellite views of some pretty wild fields. The only thing that would have made it better was to be actually see teams like on the field, individuals on the field playing uh, at the time of those images being taken. But uh, that's the best thing I've seen over the last couple of days. That is pretty cool. All right. What's your worst thing? Um, speaking of doing our part in society and staying home, maintaining social distance, uh, Kyle Walker. I don't know if you saw this. Kyle Walker, he's the right back for Manchester City, uh, also plays for the English national team. Uh, he's 29 years old. He's made over 48 appearances for the English national team. Like pretty big deal in Manchester city, really good club, obviously. Um, hours after hours after posting on social media, urging people to heed government warnings, follow government protocols. Uh, it has been reported that he then hosted a party at his house. Uh, and not just a party, but a party with escorts, uh, and a party with, um, more people than that's recommended by the government at this point, not just in the United States, but obviously in the UK. Uh, so Kyle Walker, worst thing I've seen this week, not just violating social distancing and stay-at-home protocols, but doing it after urging the public to do so. And uh, apparently he spiced it up with some escorts. Oh, man. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Uh, that I have an honorable mention for worst thing, and that was some of the video that's come out of the parking situation along the street at Sandy Beach, uh, oh, where it's yeah. just like, you know, side view mirror to side view mirror, a row of cars. It's as if it was Aloha Stadium outside of the Bruno Mars concert or something like that. And it's like, I don't think we're achieving what we're aiming to achieve here, guys. Uh, and I know that water activity, at least currently, is still allowed. Um, but that seems to be counterintuitive <laughs> and uh, I think defeats in many ways the purpose of, all right, let's go out in the water and enjoy uh, some outdoor activity there. Uh, but if everyone is sort of congregating and parking next to each other and, and in very close quarters to one another out near the street, even if the parking lot is closed, uh, I think that that's um, I, I think that that's running counter to what we're trying to accomplish here. But my best and worst of the week is actually one thing, best and worst. I don't know if you saw this, but OJ Simpson, Jordan, took to Twitter uh, to say it was, you know, he's doing these like Twitter videos and all this thing as if it's really normal. And it's just, I don't know, it, 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 I, it's like a car accident. You can't take your eyes off of it. You got to watch it. Uh, but this last or one of his recent posts was uh, all the more intriguing because he was talking about the phenomenon that is Tiger King. We both watched it. It was mind-blowing. Uh, it has taken the world by storm. But OJ took to Twitter to say that he's convinced that Carol Baskin 
from that hit Netflix show, Tiger King, did indeed murder her husband, spoiler alert, and fed him to her tigers. He said her husband is now his, quote, tiger sashimi. And I got to be honest, in a situation like this, you got to trust the experts here. And so I kind of believe OJ. I mean, it takes one to know one, right? It was the best uh, from an entertainment value and worst from just an ooginess value. And I guess OJ Simpson still counts as being kind of related to sports. So that's why it qualifies for me. <laughs> we're, we're supposed to get a bonus episode. I don't know when they're dropping that, but that's been the reports. That's that's perfect. That is best and worst. I, I can't top that. That's probably a good note to end on. All right. There you go. Yeah. It's always good to end on OJ. That'll bring people back. Uh, all right. Hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy or at Jordan Helley if you have any suggestions or uh, topic ideas or questions for the show. Uh, we are looking to drop our next episode on Thursday. We'll keep you posted. Uh, until then, Jordan, have a good one, man. Take care, man. Take care, man.